Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available, Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft, Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming, Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore, and Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Greg Potter from humanos.me. Greg's PhD work at the University of Leeds on sleep, diet, and metabolic health was featured by the likes of the BBC World Service, the Washington Post, and Rudders. Greg has a degree and master's in exercise physiology from Lockborough University, where he coached a sprinter to four gold medals at the European Championships. Not bad, Greg. Greg has also worked with groups such as the United States Naval Special Welfare Command ooh, on health and performance optimization. Greg also likes science, mountains, diving, sunshine, techno, and fish pie. On this episode, Greg and I discussed a shit ton of topics. I asked Greg about his background. I asked Greg, how did he get into circadian biology research? I asked Greg to explain what is a circadian rhythm. I asked Greg, how detrimental is artificial light, central heating within homes, and the availability of -of out-of-season foods year-round on our health? I asked Greg to explain the concept of social jet lag. I asked Greg about the use of rodent models for sleep research and inferring these results to humans. I asked Greg, would eight models be better to use for sleep research? I asked Greg about blind people's circadian regulation. I asked Greg about peripheral clocks and their influences on our health. I asked Greg about the detrimental impact 
about misalignment between the central and peripheral body clocks. I asked Greg for his top and current book recommendations. And finally, I asked Greg about the future topics I want to discuss with him when we do our next podcast. These include circadian regulation of the microbiome, indoor lighting, light therapy, behavior change, circadian rhythms, impact on blood chemistry and CBC panels and chronotypes. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding podcast with Greg and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Greg, we are recording, sir. Thank you so much for making time for me today. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. For the listeners who are not familiar who you are, give us the background. Hi, my name is Greg. Robbie, I've enjoyed listening to your show over the years. It was actually one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. So I want to first say a big thank you for all the work that you've done. And I've also learned a lot from some of the coaches that you've had on your show before. Yeah, actually, you didn't tell me that before. We I didn't know you were a, a listener because I cringe at the old episodes because the audio is like <laughs> so, so, so bad. And I'm like, for people who, who like listen to that, fair play to It's only like within even the last year I realized, oh, so you stick the mic in here and you can use this. <laughs> so thanks for that. Yeah, no worries. No, seriously, it was one of the first health shows that I listened to. God knows when that was. When did you first start, Robbie? Uh, the very first episode aired in November 2011, and I done it with Patrick Ward, who is now a sports scientist with Seattle Seahawks. I'm sure that you helped him on his way. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll, I'll take all the, the, the claim I can for that. <laughs> so anyway, my name is Greg, and I recently graduated with a PhD in sleep diet and metabolism from the University of Leeds in England. And I became interested in health generally in my teens when I hurt myself and first became interested in exercise and diet and then slowly realized that sleep was very important too. Obviously things like stress are and relationships as well. And after doing a master's in exercise physiology at Loughborough, I was looking around for PhD opportunities and realized that I wanted to add that particular string to my bow. So I was looking at sleep PhD specifically. And one came up at the University of Leeds and I finished there in June 2018. And now I work as content director at humanos.me. And I love all things related to health and performance. So I'm very happy to be here. Do you know, I, I'm finishing my master's currently through St. Mary's Twickenham. It's in strength and conditioning, but with the longer term view, if I'm still lucky enough to be alive, to uh, go on and do a PhD in like circadian biology, sleep. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated too with like mitochondrial health and like just things with the brain, like neuroscience, but definitely a, you know, a, a circadian biology sort of team will be in there. So that's definitely something I'll, I'll, I'll reconnect with you afterwards about maybe getting some of your thoughts about maybe where some of the best places to investigate into PhDs will be in that field. So remind me of that. But cool. how did you get interested in that in the first place? Like, cause I know just for me personally, you were, you know, and I'm very flattered. And thank you so much for saying that. Like my podcast, you know, has been some somewhat of a a benefit to you as a as a person, as a human being. But yeah, uh, I I would have the same the same sort of um, experience with Sean Croxon. So Sean used to have the underground uh, underground wells. Yeah. And uh, like that podcast fucking changed my life. Now, like you know, I don't mean change my life in that I you know I blindly accept what every single guest came on to show and said, but I just mean it. Op- it opened me up to a whole different universe, you know and exposed me to a lot of great things. 
and it was kind of true, Sean, that, you know, I came across an appreciation for circadian biology and that's how I got down the rabbit hole. But for you personally, like, how did you get into, how did you get into this? It's difficult to pinpoint exactly when it happened. And it's funny because now <clears throat> I work with Dan Pardy, who's the CEO of HumanOS. Mm. And I think that he is one of the first people that I listened, speak to about sleep and circadian rhythms. And I suppose it was around that time, so I finished my undergraduate in 2012, that I heard Dan speak about the subject on a few different podcasts. And I think that I'd realized that it just wasn't covered on my course. And my exercise science course was very good at the time, but I think it's only really come on the radar of people in that particular field of research in the last few years. And it's lovely now seeing some crossover between people in different departments. But I listened to Dan speak on a few different podcasts. One of them was one of Carl Lenore's projects. I think it was called The Body RX Show. It's now defunct. And he also spoke on a few others. One was Chris Cresser's. And I just thought, first, this guy's smart. Second, this stuff is really interesting. And I can see its importance. And I'm perfectly aware that right now I have a very exercise centric focus on health and diet centric one too I think and slowly over the years in my free time I started reading more and more about it I think I wrote an article for elite FTS maybe in 2013 or so about sleep and back then I really didn't know what I was speaking about but anyway as I dug in I found it so interesting and it is just a subject that the more you look into, the more interesting you find it. And you realize that it applies to every aspect of your life and your health. And it was probably around 2014 that I realized that I needed to know much more about this and then thought, well, I want to do a PhD. And initially I thought that I wanted to do one in exercise science, probably something related to neuromuscular function or to maybe skeletal muscle protein metabolism but decided on sleep and circadian biology and i'm very grateful that i did so sweet yeah it's, it's to be honest it's kind of exactly where my head is at because as i said i'm doing my master's in strength conditioning and i was kind of like, you know phd probably do an exercise physiology and i was like you know what i really love circadian biology <laughs> like, i really love like this whole concept of mitochondrial medicine and I love neuroscience. So something in those related fields, you know, around there, but, uh, and just, just with circadian biology, just like light is the more like, I suppose like the, the, the longer time goes on, the more and more I'm hearing about the importance of light, like light exposure, just in, in like so many domains, like, like how even just at a cellular level, like light affects how the cell functions, you know, with the mitochondria and the whole thing with the inner, uh, the fucking five, proteins on the inner mitochondrial membrane and like you know the electrons and the protons and frequencies and light and how that all fucking connects you know i'm not claiming that i know it all but i'm like i keep hearing the same sort of things over and over again I'm like i need to investigate this more it's quite interesting and how mm. circadian how circadian biology ties into all that mm-hmm. just just for the listeners uh you know like i know there'll be a lot of people who will have an idea of what what circadian rhythms are but there is a lot more to like i think for most people to hear circadian rhythm now they're just like oh day night that's kind of it you know whereas obviously there's kind of rhythms within rhythms you know there's obviously the, the dark light cycles temperature cycles seasonal cycles then there's even just like daily rhythms within our own body so could you maybe break that down for us sure yeah and i suppose i should probably preempt this just by saying that 
all organisms evolved in the presence of quite predictable environmental cycles. So cycles in things like light and dark, temperature, and also food availability. So we evolved our body's clocks in response to that. And these different cycles occur across different timescales. So we have daily cycles from the rotation of the planet about its axis. There are also tidal cycles in some organisms and lunar cycles in some, and then seasonal rhythms that are the result of the rotation of the earth about the sun, of course. And anyway, as you mentioned, we have rhythms that are nested within rhythms and these occur across different timescales. So if we think about the shortest of these, then there are so-called ultradian rhythms and they take place on a basis of less than 20 hours. So your heartbeat is one of these, for example. Then we have circadian rhythms and these are rhythms that recur on a basis of about 20 to 30 hours. An example of this would be the circadian rhythm in core body temperature. And then there are infradian rhythms, which are rhythms that recur at least every, sorry, they recur on periods of at least 30 hours. So for example, you have the menstrual cycle and in some other organisms, you have various different seasonal rhythms too. So for example, deer, they shed their antlers each year at certain times, and that's probably to attract mates. And something that's important to understand is that these rhythms are self-generated. So these aren't responses to things like changes in food availability or anything like that. So if you take organisms and you place them in what's called temporal isolation, so they're not exposed to, exposed to any external time cues, such as the light-dark cycle or temperature cycles, then you see these rhythms persist by themselves. And their purpose broadly is to anticipate and adapt to change in the environment. So for example, each day in the morning, our bodies produce a large spike in cortisol. And the purpose of that is to basically increase our arousal and mobilize our energy reserves in anticipation of their head. And then they also adapt to changes in our environments. So for example, if you take humans out into natural environments, as when they go camping, for instance, then what you'll see is that if they go camping during the winter, when the days are much shorter, their bodies will synthesize melatonin over a much longer time than if they go camping during the summer, when the days are longer and therefore the nights are shorter. And I can speak more about some of the other characteristics of these, these different rhythms, if you like, but I suppose those are some of the key principles. Just off the back of your last point there, how detrimental then is artificial lighting if you know if in a natural lighting environment in terms of summer versus winter the body was meant to have this sort of diversity in its melatonin onset you know whereas now like we basically don't have winter anymore in our current environment because we've got heated homes light all the time and we also have the food that we can have every single day all year round like we don't eat seasonally and as I just alluded to there, our temperature regulation and light regulation isn't seasonal either. So like what, what detrimental impact is that having on us biologically, like the biological toll? And is there any research that has looked into that or are we just, are people just sort of making like educational guesses? Well, I, I, I think that it's, it's difficult to say exactly what toll it's having on us, but I think that, there are lots of clues that it is negatively affecting 
various aspects of our biology. So if you look at our patterns of light exposure, for example, and you compare those to when we're out in more natural settings, then most of us now spend the majority of our time indoors. So on average, we spend something like 88% of our time indoors in sheltered environments. And an important point is that the intensity of the light that we're exposed to indoors is very low compared to the intensity of the light we're exposed to outdoors. So the unit of intensity of light exposure is called the lux. And indoors, it's very rare that you'd be exposed to more than about 1,000 lux. Whereas outdoors, even on a cloudy day, at midday, you're probably exposed to something like 10,000 lux. And at the peak of summer, on a clear day, you might be exposed to as much as 150,000 lux. And interestingly, our eyes aren't very good at detecting that difference in intensity because the human visual system works by means of contrast. So because of that, we don't really notice the difference, but light has these non-image forming functions and the intensity of light is very important for those functions. And one of them is what's called entrainment, which is basically synchronizing our rhythms to the 24 hour day. Now, if we went into caves, as I mentioned earlier, in that type of temporal isolation, then we'd find that on average, our body circadian rhythms aren't precisely 24 hours. So our sleep-wake cycles would take place about every 24 hours and 8 minutes or 24 hours and 15 minutes, something in that range. And people differ, of course. Some people have faster rhythms, some people have slower rhythms. But the point is that they need to be reset each day for that reason. Now, because we're now spending all of our time indoors, we don't have that strong time cue to anchor our rhythms to the appropriate time of day. So our bodies aren't as tightly synchronized with the natural light-dark cycle. And of course, the corollary to this is that at night we're exposed to more artificial light than we once were. And one result of that is probably that our sleep timing tends to delay. So because our body's clocks are on average longer than 24 hours, if we're not exposed to strong time cues, then the time at which we are active and sleep tends to drift later into the day. Now, left to our own devices, that might not be an issue by itself. But the one problem is that most of us have to wake up at a certain time of day to then go about our working day. So now what we found is that sleep timing is getting later. And interestingly, if you look at cities, for example, versus rural settings, then people will go to bed later in the cities. Because of this, people have to use alarm clocks to wake up in the morning, something like 80% of people in Northern Europe use alarm clocks. And so they're artificially curtailing their sleep and therefore we're suffering from the consequences of insufficient sleep. Now, of course, light has various other functions and effects on our health too. And you touched on some of those earlier. And these are actually probably far more pervasive than we once realized. So for example, light will affect things like cognition and arousal acutely. But interestingly, there's been some preclinical research in the last few years showing that it's important to things like memory formation. It might be important to metabolism. So there was a guy named Peter Light who perhaps last year, I know it's a great name, isn't it? Given yeah, yeah. How ironic. Topic of research, nominative determinism, who has looked at 
the effects of light exposure on fat metabolism and found that blue light exposure stimulates lipolysis, even when there's a skin barrier intact. And then, as you touched on earlier, you also have work on things like photobiomodulation and the fact that certain wavelengths of light may influence things like mitochondrial function too. So we have all of those different things going on. And for us to actually work out the effects that light has on health, we need tight controlled experimental studies. And there are various ways that we can study this. At one level, we can just look, for example, at large groups of people and exposure to artificial light at night. And we can see, is there a correlation between people's exposure to that type of light and various health outcomes? And interestingly, you do see things such as associations between nocturnal light pollution and prevalence of obesity worldwide, if you look at satellite data. But then you can also design carefully controlled experiments in which you shift the light-dark cycle and then look at various health outcomes, so things like metabolic health. And one way by which we study disruption to the circadian system is to un enforce unnatural light-dark cycles, or specifically cycles that our bodies can't synchronize with. So because our body's clocks are typically about 24 hours and 15 minutes, if the light-dark cycle that we're exposed to is too far outside of the range to which we can synchronize our clocks, then our body's clocks run free. And what happens is we start to engage in behaviors at times that are inappropriate for our body's clocks. So for example, if you enforce a 28 hour light dark cycle, then after three of those 28 hour days in inverted commas, you would find that there's 12 hour misalignment between when people are engaging in behaviors and their body's clocks because 28 minus 24 is four hours, multiply that by three, it's 12 hours. So after three of those 28 hour days, people are now up physically active and eating during their body's biological night times. And under those circumstances, we see all sorts of negative effects on health. There's a guy named Frank Shear at Harvard University in the States who's done some really great research on this particular subject in recent years. And he's found that if you take people who are otherwise healthy and you expose them to these types of light dark cycles, then within three days, three of eight people were temporarily classified as pre-diabetic. But you also see widespread disruptions to other facets of metabolic health, for instance. So we do have some preliminary evidence from these cross-sectional studies that light exposure associates with various health outcomes. And then these carefully controlled experimental studies are also showing that this type of misalignment between our beh behaviors and our body's clocks rapidly leads to deterioration, both in metabolic health, but also in cognitive function too. And obviously those types of studies are designed to maximize the contrast between <clears throat> how we're behaving and our body's clocks. They're designed to produce the largest effect size possible. And you wouldn't necessarily see that type of circadian disruption in the real world, even in things like jet lag. But they do clearly show that this disruption to our body's clocks has some causal roles in negative health outcomes. 
like and essentially this is kind of leading to what's been termed social jet lag yeah so social jet lag is a concept that was coined by a guy named till Ronerberg at ludwig maximilian university and what a, what a cool name <laughs> he's a cool guy too and the the concept is that if you look at people's mid-sleep time, then it shifts between work days and free days. So for most people, they will go to bed later and wake up later on the weekends than they will on work days. That might not be completely accurate, actually. It's more accurate to say that their mid-sleep time is typically later on free days than it is on work days because they have a longer opportunity on which to sleep. And... For that reason, at the start of the working week, let's say that's Monday, it's often as if they're flying several time zones to the east, hence the fact that we call it social jet lag. And there have been various studies on this in recent years. The the first large study really was done by Till in 2012, and they looked at more than 65,000 people and found that 69% of people experience at least an hour of social jet lag. And they found that Beyond the effects of social jet lag on sleep duration alone, social jet lag is associated with increased BMI among overweight and obese adults. But more recently, it's been shown that social jet lag associates with various other cardiometabolic abnormalities, so high resting heart rate, dysglycemia, dyslipidemia, excessive inflammation, hypercortisolemia, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, all sorts of things. And one reason for this might just be that higher social social jet lag associates with poorer health behaviors such as lower physical activity because you can imagine that if people are more healthy and they're spending more of their time outside during the day and they're careful about their light exposure at night then that would synchronize their body's clocks more tightly with a natural light dark cycle so they're likely to go to bed earlier so they're likely to get more complete sleep and It's plausible also that the associations that we see between social jet lag and these metabolic problems reflect some sort of reverse causality. So it might be that, for example, poor health influences occupation, which in turn affects social jet lag. But I should say that these studies, for the most part, do a relatively good job of adjusting statistically for various confounders. So it seems that this particular construct does have some utility in assessing this type of disruption to our body's clocks but actually in order to look at that objectively you need to directly measure biological timing and that would involve measuring some outputs of the circadian system foremost among which is typically melatonin synthesis so this social jet lag construct i think is is very useful and it's definitely something that people should recognize and take heed of And even though we can't say that social jet lag is directly indicative of disruption to our body's clocks, in many instances, that's likely the case. Just one note I've made there, we sort of talking about research. um, Like the, the one sort of messed up thing is like, we can't use mice for circadian research because like they're nocturnal. We can. <laughs> or, or can we? Correct me. I, I was kind of a question I wanted to understand. Yeah, it's, it's not an area of my expertise by any means. And they are widely used. But of course, a big issue is that 
most research that's done using mice in this instance uses C57 black six mice, male mice too specifically. And what you're alluding to is the fact that they're nocturnal animals and we are diurnal or daytime active animals. Mm. So what you often see is that some of their biological rhythms are 12 hours out of phase with our own. So the timing of their body's clocks differs by ours by 12 hours or 180 degrees is how circadian biologists would refer to it typically. So in some instances, this is a big problem or it's something that's worth understanding and important to understand. So for example, melatonin is a hormone that's produced by the brain during darkness and it basically acts as an internal time cue. So your liver isn't photoreceptive. It can't tell whether the sun is out or it's dark outside. So your body needs ways of sending that time signal elsewhere throughout its tissues. And just to give some background on this, that's done by way of the eyes. So light enters the eyes. It's detected by these specialized cells in the inner retina that contain a photopigment called melanopsin. And this has peak absorbance to blue light, so our body's clocks are most responsive to blue light. Anyway, these cells then have a monosynaptic connection back to a structure called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And this is in the front of the hypothalamus, and basically it sits above where the optic nerves cross, and it samples information from the eyes about light exposure. And it keeps a running record of that light exposure. And then this signal is sent back to the pineal gland where melatonin is synthesized. And it's synthesized during darkness. And then melatonin circulates in the blood throughout our bodies and acts on two receptors in humans. There are three receptors in various other animals and tells them that it's the nighttime. So therefore to do nighttime activities. Now, what I'm getting at is that if you use mice, for example, to look at how melatonin affects them, then because melatonin is signaling darkness and they're nocturnal animals, it will probably have opposite effects to the effect in us because for mice, the dark phase is their daytime. So it would be a problem if you took pancreatic cells from a mouse and you expose them to melatonin to try and understand how melatonin influences pancreatic cells in a human, for instance. Mm. Now, there are other model organisms that you can use that are daytime active. So, for example, some people study fruit flies for various purposes, and there are also diurnal rodents too. And I think it's encouraging to see people using those, but I, I don't want to make it seem as if we should just disregard studies that use nocturnal mice because fundamentally, if, for example, you show that disrupting the circadian system of a mouse associates with certain health outcomes, then I don't see a strong reason to suspect that that might not be the case for humans too. But just as a general comment regarding animal research, I think it's also important to use multiple animal models of human responses to various interventions 
before coming to conclusions regarding how we might be influenced ourselves. So just because you show something using one particular type of model organism, it doesn't mean that the same might hold true of humans. And before we get to that type of clinical research, it's important to consistently reproduce those results using multiple different types of animals, I think, before doing more specific focused work on humans. So that was a slightly roundabout answer, but I think those points are all relevant to that particular question. No, that's a great answer. Fantastic answer. I really appreciate it. Would then, I know you said it, it's probably going to be a better sort of concept to use multiple animal models. I mean, just as you were speaking there, I was kind of thinking, would, would sort of monkeys or, you know, people from, or people, I say, animals from the ape uh, sort of um, family, would they they'd be better models maybe to utilize, would they? Possibly, in that, of course, genetically, they're more similar to us. Mm. But that, the that's, kind of, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Listen, and I'm asking these questions as, as someone being completely ignorant to this. So there could be someone listening to both of us who's in this research role and they're always going, oh, God, these guys have a clue. So <laughs> if you are listening, enlighten us. I'm just, I want to learn. That's all. I'm like, sure. McGregor, I'm like Conor McGregor. I either win or I learn. There's no, <laughs> there's no losing. But, but I, I suppose that the counterpoint is that because they are similar to us, their life histories are similar to us. And that means that they're relatively long lived. And for us to be able to study responses to various stimuli, we need to do so over feasible timescales. And that's why it's useful studying things like fruit flies and mice. Yeah. They, don't, they don't live for 50 years. Yeah. And, and of course, that's one of the reasons that people typically favor those types of organisms in laboratory studies as opposed to primates. There are other ones too, such as ethics and so on, but they might be useful. So far, there hasn't been a great deal of research done on circadian biology and other primates. There is some research looking at things like sleep. And I, th I think that I need to look more closely at that particular subject. So I'm, I'm sorry if my answers aren't as coherent as I'd like them oh, to be. Great. I asked Dan Pardy this question actually when he was on my podcast. What the fuck do blind people do? And I mean that in a serious way. Like, because obviously they don't get the same entrainment because they're blind. They're not getting the light through their eye. Now, I know the skin picks up light to a certain degree, but it still wouldn't be as, as strong a regulator as light getting into our eye. So, have, have you ever, is there any studies like looking at how a comparison of like blind people and just like people who have sight in terms of how their circadian clock regulates? Is there a difference? There is. It depends on the type of person. So you have people who are visually blind, but they have intact, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, those specialized retinal cells that I mentioned earlier. So those people can synchronize fine with the light-dark cycle. Very and it's not, a, it's not a problem for them. But on the other hand, you also have people who don't have functional IPRGCs. And in that instance, what happens is they experience something called non 24 hour sleep wake rhythm disorder. Wow. So, what happens is their body's clocks basically run free. So, you can imagine that once every while they're aligned with the 24 hour day. But for the most part, the way that they're behaving, if they try to sustain a behavioral pattern that's in sync with the rest of society, 
is misaligned with their body's biological clocks. So at some points for them, they must feel pretty terrible because it's as if they are severely jet lagged. Now, the question that has been asked is, how can we help these people? And which different chronobiotics or agents that are capable of modifying circadian rhythm parameters or biological rhythm parameters are able to synchronize these people with a 24-hour day? And people have looked at things like caffeine, but the only one that seems to be able to do so is melatonin. So there's a guy called Stuart Lockley, who's at Harvard, who did work with people like Deborah Skeen at the University of Surrey on this subject. And if these people take melatonin supplements at an appropriate time of day, then many of them can synchronize to the 24 hour day without a problem. So fortunately there is some hope for them. But for those people who do run free, you can imagine that they spend an awful lot of the time not feeling very good about themselves. Yeah, fantastic answer. You touched on the liver earlier on saying, you know, that it, you know, it, it can't detect light. So my next question here to you is about peripheral regulators. So things like timing of meals, social interaction, um, you know, how important are these peripheral regulators to our circadian biology? So it depends on the particular stimuli that you're looking at and also on the particular organ systems that you're looking at. So you mentioned social interactions there. I think that there was once interest in whether these might be time cues, but they don't really seem to be. So there's not a great deal of research that's looked at that in recent years. But regarding things like diet, there is a lot of research. And diet's very important to what we call peripheral clocks. So I mentioned earlier that you have a master clock in your brain. And every clock that exists outside of this particular clock is known as a peripheral clock. And the basic purpose of these is to set the daily program of processes in each of our tissues. And this is important because they need to be optimized for various activities at certain times of day. So if you just think about digestion, for example, then your body needs to be ready for that during the daytime. And if you, if you look at the migrating motor complex, which is this characteristic pattern of muscular activity that pushes indigestible food from the stomach to the small intestine, then the speed of this is over twice as high during the day. Or if you consider insulin sensitivity, then you have clocks in your fat cells that have their own circadian rhythm in insulin sensitivity with a peak at around midday. And these fat cells, they produce a insulin sensitizing hormone named adiponectin. And there's a circadian rhythm in production of this hormone too, which also has a peak at around midday. And partly as a result of these changes, you find that insulin sensitivity is highest during the daytime. And there's been some great work by Frank Shear and Chris Morris, his postdoc, showing that oral glucose tolerance is about 17% lower in the biological evening than the biological morning. So it's important that these clocks are synchronized so that our bodies are best set for daytime activities. And every clock that exists in our cells has its own molecular clock. And this is driven by a specific program of 
gene expression and translation of the mRNA transcripts into proteins. And the basic purpose of these clocks is to separate incompatible activities. So building new structures and breaking down damaged structures, for instance. And to get to this question of the importance of meal timing, the timing of these molecular clocks seems to be primarily set by food intake in these peripheral clocks, not the master clock. The master clock's robust to changes in the timing of food intake. But if you look at the early work on this, Francesca Damiola did a study in 2000 in which she basically fed one group of mice from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and another group from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. and found that within just a few days, the timing of gene expression in clocks and organs such as the liver was different by about 12 hours between the two groups. But the timing of the master clock in the brain barely shifted. And then two years ago, some research at the University of Surrey did the first study on whether this is the case in humans too. And they basically looked at young adults and they exposed them to two different meal patterns, each lasting about six days. And in one of the patterns, they just shifted the timing of three daily meals by five hours. They delayed it by five hours. And they found that after that shift in food timing, the timing of the blood glucose rhythm shifted by nearly six hours later. So that suggests that the timing of the clocks that influence that particular rhythm was also shifted by a similar amount. And they did look at timing of some of the genes that are involved in these molecular clocks in fat cells from the buttocks. And they found that these clocks were delayed by about one hour. But again, like the study of mice, they found that the timing of the melatonin rhythm which is a surrogate of the timing of the master clock rhythm, was unchanged. So basically, it seems that if we shift our dark timing without shifting our exposure to the light-dark cycle, we can shift the timing of these peripheral clocks. And fundamentally, the important point to understand is that in the same way that it's important to spend plenty of time outside during the daytime and to minimise exposure to artificial light at night, it's important that we concentrate our feeding are eating because we're not animals other animals <laughs> during the daytime and then we minimize our eating behavior during the nighttime and during our biological nighttime specifically and that's something that we can get to later but there's various work that's been done in recent years showing that diet timing is a very important determinant of our health and is that detrimental then if, if our peripheral clock gets, gets out of sync with our master clock? Like gets out of like, get, gets a, like, is there a bandwidth of like how out of sync the peripheral clock can get with the master clock? And then like, is there a threshold point where one, like now it's, it's just, if you go beyond this threshold, like that's actually detrimental now to our health because the peripheral clocks are so out of sync with the master clock. It's, it's a great question. And it's not a question I've got a good answer to at all mm. <laughs> because so, it's, go ahead, it's, go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's, it's a difficult question to study and there just hasn't been any research really that's been done on humans addressing that specific question. <gasps> PhD topic. <laughs> so there's a lady named Saline Vetter who's now a, the University of Boulder in Colorado, who just wrote a great review paper in the European Journal of Neuroscience on this subject. 
it was on the subject of circadian system disruption generally, but we can think about this as occurring at various different levels. So you can think about misalignment between our behaviors and our biological clocks, but then you can also think about changes in the timing of our different tissues and what a healthy timing relationship between these tissues might be. Mm. So I didn't get to this earlier, but fundamentally our biological rhythms have three different characteristics. They have what's called a period, which is just the time between the same point in the biological rhythm on consecutive days. So I mentioned that our body's clocks are slightly longer than 24 hours on average. That's their period. You have the phase, which is the timing of your body's clock right now relative to its rhythm. And then also you have the amplitude, which is often defined as the peak between, sorry, the difference between a rhythm's peak and its trough, but sometimes it's defined as the difference between its peak and its mean or its trough and its mean. Now, I mentioned that because phase is an important concept to understand and you can now think about the fact that we have all these different phase relationships between our different tissues and cells and if we shift meal timing then we can change these phase relationships mm. your question is well what constitutes a healthy range of phase relationships yeah. and honestly we have no idea but you can imagine how difficult that would be to study so we have trillions of cells and you're going to try and measure the different phases of those cells, knowing that they all respond to various different inputs mm. in a very dynamic way, which is forever changing. Sorry, that's redundant. But we just don't understand what the answer to that particular question is right now. But I, I think that the fact that if we feed animals during the biological nighttime, which is when the master clock is basically promoting sleep, then we do see negative health outcomes for things such as metabolic health. And that's tentative evidence that it may be that large disruptions to these phase relationships is a bad thing. And we experience this ourselves too. So if we experience jet lag, for example, which you typically experience when you travel across at least three different time zones, you feel pretty terrible, right? So you sleep poorly during the new nighttime. You won't fall asleep as quickly. If you go eastward, for example, you'll wake up early. If you go westward, your sleep quality will be worse. Your sleep will fragment. You'll feel bad during the daytime. You'll perform poorly in cognitive and physical tasks. Maybe you're more tired, you might experience headaches, you might be irritable, you might not be able to concentrate, and also you'll probably have tummy issues, you'll have GI disturbances too. And people typically find that these symptoms don't dissipate at the same rate. So for example, maybe their GI symptoms last for a shorter period of time than the effect on sleep after a large change in time zone. So all of that to me points to the fact that these different phases are changing at different rates and that's going to have consequences for how we feel that are notable, but whether it's possible for us to actually get a good handle 
on exactly what's going on in humans in years to come isn't clear to me yet. So I, I think, I think again, just to reiterate something I mentioned earlier, it's important to engage in these behaviors that we know are going to help set the time of our body's clocks each day. And that will help us perform at our best. But how much of that is due to the particular question that you asked? I have no idea. The reason why that sort of question was top of mind awareness for me was, you know, I, I listened to the podcast you know with Danny and, and he t- spoke about, you know, he spoke about two research papers, you know, one was about circadian entrainment and camping and then the other one was about this, you know, timing of nutrients, you know, and across the time of the day. And what kind of struck me was like, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this uh, podcast who are coaches and the typical sort of coaching schedule is, you know, up early in the morning, usually don't eat because they have to go train, mm-hmm. uh, usually to go train their clients and whatnot. And I know that you've, you've been previously in the world of, you know, human performance and, and I don't know if you're a personal trainer, but I know your background is in sports science. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I know that you'd be well aware of sort of the time schedule. So usually like, they're, you know, coaches are up early, they're training, you know, if they do eat their first meal or they usually eat lightly throughout the day, almost like it's a coffee and like a little bit of meal and they'll train and, you know, then they're back in the evening time to train again. Usually they have their biggest meal sort of um, at night, like well, a lot of coaches do and maybe they had a lunch too or whatever. But mm-hmm. so like, a lot of the sort of patterns they would have is they would actually get the majority of their calories at night. Mm-hmm. And me personally, that's actually how like my sort of body clock is set up because that was just for me coaching too. I used to get home late, you know, late would be like, you know, after eight, 8 PM nine. And that'd be when I'd have have my dinner. Um, and I just wouldn't be a massive, I wouldn't eat massively in the morning, you know, I usually train in the morning. So basically like my meals are much later in the day than the average person. You know? So usually my mm-hmm. meal times are like, they're like something very small at nine then I would have my next sort of meal at two to three. And then like, I have my dinner like at half eight at night. Like, and so when I was listening to that podcast and you were talking about like, Oh, you know, people gain more weight and all that. Like one question I sort of have was, well, like what if calories are controlled and you know, macronutrients are in place and other factors like the person is very active and you know, sure. like it, it kind of it, 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 like, and I like, listen, I'm in a place where like I can ask those follow-up questions and decipher and be a little bit deeper, but kind of, I was saying, what I was thinking was that some people with, with not the same frame of reference as myself or someone like yourself or, or someone sure. who's in our field this and that could walk away and say, well, I heard that when you eat late night, you get fat. Do you know that kind of way? Whereas, uh-huh. uh, you know, like there, I think there's just other caveats that I think could have been put in place there in terms of, well, calories are... Because another thing that was said and that was that like, you know, I know you were saying a hypothesis was that people who eat more the calories in the day, maybe they, they expend more calories because of neat and all that. But I personally know mm. myself that if I eat more during the day, I just feel sluggish. Like I just like, just, it's, it's just how my body currently is habituated just from years of coaching that my, my, my clocks in my body are like my main meals at night. And during the day, I just kind of, not that I, I just have two smaller meals. Basically like my eating pattern is it goes, it's an ascending pattern. If you like, I go from smaller to a meat, like small breakfast, medium to a lunch. And then like, I get the main bulk of my calories at nighttime, but I still know that I'm well within my calories. You know, like I'm fucking six foot two, 75 kilos. And you know, I look like a skeleton because everyone's like, what is your body fat? And I don't know. It's very low, but anyway, <laughs> so I'm just saying like, you know, obviously there's other factors sure. that need to be put in place there in that, in that caveat. Yeah. So, okay. Beginning with you, what I would say is that, our bodies are adaptive and what you'd probably find is that right now you feel like during the daytime you function best eating relatively little yeah. and 
that's understandable, I think, because actually if you restrict energy intake acutely, then it tends to increase arousal. Mm. So many people, for example, report that if they skip breakfast, then they've got great focus at work or whatever. Yeah, they're, symp- they're, they're, they're in their sympathetics. That's what people joke to go, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Yeah, and, and also there, there are probably other factors going on, such as changes in erection signaling and so on. But I think that that might be the case. But what you find is that within a few days of switching to a different type of eating pattern, you'd probably entrain your system to anticipate that eating pattern yeah. and you'd start to feel better. And regarding how this affects health, I suppose that it would, it would be nice if I just address this in two different ways. So one is what our body's clocks are best set for. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned earlier that they're best set for digestion during the day. But if, for example, you look at diet-induced thermogenesis or the increase in metabolic rate that's present for several hours after eating, then you see that you burn more calories after eating a meal in the biological morning than after the identical meal in the evening, which should be conducive to staying lean if that's one of your goals. Well, well, just a genuine question. Mm. What are we basing those two last claims off? Basing it off a paper by Frank Shear and Chris Morris. Is, from, it just, is it just one paper though? Yes, but it was a very well-designed experiment. And it, it looked at the biological morning, and the biological evening specifically, using appropriate methods to study the circadian system. Mm. And whether that's been replicated, I don't know, but they, they perform very, very tightly controlled experiments. So I, I, I have no reservation whatsoever in putting my eggs in that basket. Yeah, no, no doubt. But I would say, would you not say it's a little bit, you know, to be so confident, like to base that yourself one study? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I wouldn't base it just off one study by any means. So I mentioned earlier insulin sensitivity because you, you need to think about these things <clears throat> from a broader perspective. And I think it's always the case in these conversations that you, you tend to speak about one study. And of course, there are, there are many studies that you could speak about. And often it's the case also that if you had the opportunity to, to ask a few more questions, then you'd be able to flesh things out in a slightly more comprehensive yeah. and coherent way. But if, if you look, for example, at resting energy expenditure, then there's been some work done on this recently. And they basically found that it's lowest <clears throat> during the nighttime. So during the point at which your core body temperature is at its lowest and its highest when your core body temperature is at its highest. So you're burning the most calories at those times. And in a way, it therefore makes sense for you to align your feeding with those patterns. And they also found a similar relationship for respiratory quotient or the proportion of fat and carbohydrate that you're oxidizing. Mm. So that's one more thing to consider. And then you've got things like immune function too. So behaviors like physical activity and eating and drinking, they all increase your exposure to pathogens. So your circadian system needs to tweak things like your gut microbiota and other determinants of immune function according to the time of day. And just as an example of this, what you see is that if you take mice and you expose them to foodborne or airborne pathogens at the start of when they naturally sleep, they're less likely to survive them when they're exposed, when they naturally be awake. So what I'm getting at is that all of those point to mechanisms by which the timing of food could be important and by which it might make sense to shift some of our food intake earlier in the day. But now if we actually look at the important studies that have been done addressing this question more directly, there are some, 
there are several papers that have done a really good job of this. Mm. And I think one that illustrates it very nicely was done by Danielle Lukubovics in 2013. And what she did was did a 12-week weight loss program among overweight and obese women who were randomized into one of two groups. So one of these groups, they had half their calories at breakfast and another group had half their calories at dinner. And importantly, they consumed the exact same number of calories and the same macronutrient composition. And what she found was that those in the late eating group lost 4% of their body weight, which is pretty good. But the early eating group lost more than twice as much of their body weight. So they lost 11%. If we then look at their waist circumference, the late eating group lost 3% off their waists, but the early eating group lost 8% off their waists. And the early eaters also had greater improvements in things like blood glucose and blood lipids. <clears throat> there was also a very, very nice study done on this last year by, sorry, let's jump in there. Just with, with that study was like mm. 12 weeks. So like that obviously wasn't in a lab controlled. No, but it, I, I would have to go back and look at it, but I believe that the diets were given to them. Well, like what about other factors like activity and there's just so much like I, I always like when, when people say calories were mastered, like they can't be matched like any, cause if I take in 3000, you take in 3000, that doesn't mean that my, I metabolize all those three, the way you do metabolize those three either, you know, it, it just, sure. And, and even, and even just other confounding factors again, like physical activity uh, and whatnot. It's just like, I'm always worried that like, you know, people say, oh, calories are matched. Like, nah, they weren't, they weren't because it's impossible. Yeah. But, but if, if you look at the Frank Shear experiment, for example, then they control things like physical activity. So that provides the evidence that independently of those behaviors, you have this biological rhythm determination of diet-induced thermogenesis, which is, of course, one small component of energy expenditure. And then another experimental paradigm that you can use to ask this question is the one that they use, which is you give people controlled meals and sure, you let them roam around in the real world. But that's important because many people, they do try and stick to prescribed diets. And if you're still seeing this effect when you say, this is what you're going to consume and you're going to put 50% of your calories at breakfast, then that to me is still strong evidence that that's a good way to go for many of these people. Mm -hmm. And then as I was going to get to earlier, it's not the only study that has tried to address this type of question. So lots of people have become interested recently in things like time-restricted eating. And Courtney Peterson from Pennington Biomedical Research Center did a good study last year on the subject. And they basically took overweight and obese men with prediabetes. And an important point here is that they adjusted their energy intake to make sure that nobody lost weight. And what they did was they compared spreading three meals out over 12 hours each day for five weeks to having the same three meals in a six hour period that finished by 3 p.m. So this was their early time restricted eating group. And everybody went through both conditions. And what they found is that they didn't experience any differences in body weight after two conditions because they controlled their energy intake. But the early time restricted eating still led to better insulin sensitivity, to lower measures of oxidative stress, to reduce the appetite, and also a very substantial drop in morning blood pressure. 10 millimeters of mercury and that's comparable to the effect of ACE inhibitors which are drugs that are commonly used to lower blood pressure mm. so that that to me is very strong evidence too that it makes sense yeah yeah and, and, so, and the other factor is that people just completely uh 
report the wrong shit. That was the other thing I was trying to think of, like with those studies. Yeah. But, sorry, sorry, but again, in that instance, the food is being given to them. Oh, I know, I know, no, but I, I'm not talking about that study. It was just like when you read these studies, and that was, I was like, there's something else I missed. I was like, oh, yeah, the major one is that people usually like they say, oh, I did stick to this. Is like, sure, but like, see, so, you now you can't put that towards that study because both groups lost weight. Whereas, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, people say, oh, I did take in these calories and they didn't lose weight. It's like, well, then obviously they were eating more. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, yeah. They misreported because you know, people completely underestimate their uh, th- how much their like their output to their input. But sure. like, I, I suppose a, a question I like that's on my mind too is like if if you did take say two groups and you just said right one group fed in the morning one group fed at night, but they were both in a deficit of calories. Like what 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 would the difference be then? Do you know what I mean? So like if you like if 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 you just said right you're going to take all your calories in the morning. But that's it. But you're going to be underneath your caloric needs, and you're going to do the same in this group. But you're going to do it at nighttime. Like, would you see much difference in terms of body composition, weight loss, biomarkers? Yeah. Well, I think I think that Yukubovic's paper that I mentioned earlier is the closest that we have to answering that question in humans, yeah. because fundamentally, what you are looking at is shifting more of your calories earlier or later in the day, while trying to keep everything else constant during a during a weight loss diet. So those people were in a negative energy balance. But has there been a study that's looked, for example, at what happens if you only have a single very large morning meal versus a single very large evening meal? That study hasn't been done. There have been studies that have looked at comparisons between consuming three meals a day and a single meal a day, Mm. but that's not answering that question there that you asked specifically. But we have these studies that have been done and they're quite consistent in terms of their implications. And then we also have preclinical research too, which I didn't mention, but if you look at mice, for example, then what you find is that if you give them food access during their rest phase, so when they would naturally be sleeping, then they consume an equivalent number of calories to when they have food access to their active period, when they naturally be awake, but because there's misalignment between their energy expenditure and their energy intake, they gain more fat over time. So that again is suggestive evidence that this might be important. Yeah. See, like, I suppose one thing that I've just sort of learned personally myself is that like you hear certain things and like, I remember I read a book once when I was younger and the, it was about the liver gallbladder flush. And your mom was saying the best time to get the majority of your calories is midday because the, the liver makes most of the digestive enzymes, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, you know, I started stuffing myself in midday and felt shite then all the time. And then I got into some other, like, literature and were like, you know, never eat four hours before bed because it fucks up leptin and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Jesus, I better not eat four hours before bed. Basically, what I'm getting at is, like, when you start, like, buying into certain things black and white, Mm. They can start leading into like, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that or this or if you eat all in the morning or all at night or if you don't, if you eat one meal, five meals, ten. It's just like, you know, and like I think one of the key things is that the body is adaptable. And yeah. Once you find what works for you and it's contributing to your health, like that's what's most important. Like, you know, because I've just seen so many different like because again people be like oh you should never eat like just like you know never eat all your calories for bed nights like go to fucking italy and tell people that and like those people are great and greece you know what i mean and like because it's a social thing because there's other aspects that people don't take into consideration like the social aspect of sitting down like you know Mm -hmm. it's like like the whole like the way the french eat too you know what i mean 
like there's so many other factors that feed into this and then even with the individual that's why i'm saying like other things like if you someone who's conscious of like they know sort of roughly their caloric intake for the day or their macros and how to spread it out and they're active as like well like if we took that individual who like gets majority of their calories at night and then put them against someone in this morning pattern would you see any sort of difference at all and it's just like well we like they're sort of things again it's like people could walk away with these things and go well I heard that this is definitely it. Like, you know, it's just like, uh, this is too, too much like context that needs to be put in around that for a specific individual. Like, now don't get me wrong. Like this stuff is fucking super interesting. Like, and it, mm. you know, and, and seeing these sort of patterns, no doubt. And it, it does make a lot of sense. I suppose, you know, you know, like these rhythms going based off the rhythms of, of the body, like and certain things like that. But I'm just trying to again, as we do need to be careful that like, just because, you know, a certain study or, you know, what seems to be something of an authoritative figure says, you know, this is optimal. It's like, uh, you got to test shit. Basically, what I'm saying is you're an N1. You really got to test shit out for yourself and see how, how it works. Sure. I, th- I think you make lots of very important points there. And I wouldn't really dispute any of them. But I suppose that what I would try and <clears throat> really drill home is that these data are consistent in suggesting that for most people, especially given how most of us eat, which is a relatively small lunch, sorry, relatively small breakfast, a relatively large lunch, and then a big dinner is probably misaligned with how we want to eat based on this experimental research that we have so far. And there are other things that I could have mentioned that I haven't mentioned, but the question of whether we adapt to these patterns is very important you do see that type of adaptations with certain stimuli so for example look at strength exercise okay if you look at your strength and power production over the course of the day then what you typically find is that it will track your body's temperature Mm. so peak core body temperature typically occurs in the mid-afternoon and at that time you'll be at your strongest and at your most powerful now if you then take somebody and you put them through a training program in which they're strength training in the morning, what you'd see is that that morning to afternoon difference in their strength and power production would be much less pronounced after the training program. I get you. So you see some evidence of adaptation there. And interestingly also, if you compare the adaptations of morning training to afternoon training, they don't seem to be very substantial. So it's not necessarily better to train in the afternoon there's been a little bit of work mm. showing that that could be the case but actually on on the way to the evidence that doesn't seem to be the case so you clearly see your body's clocks and your peripheral clocks getting used to those particular patterns and obviously human studies are expensive to fund difficult to do so for the most part they're necessarily relatively short term and you mentioned there things such as social patterns and the importance of relationships. And of course, those things are enormously important. And I, I wouldn't dismiss them. And I think that in many instances in our noisy, free living context, those things are probably much more important than people realize them to be. Yeah. But I, I think one other point that I would like to make is that the particular patterns of eating that we have will influence our food choices too. Yeah. So, so let's say, for example, that you decide that whereas at the moment you have your final meal at 9 p.m. and you're going to stop consuming your final meal by 6 p.m. 
for many people who enjoy a glass of wine after work or whatever, their food choices will shift as they change their diet timing too. So in that instance, they might consume less alcohol than they did previously, which would be a good thing for the most part. And for that reason, when we change one thing in the real world, it's rare that that's the only thing that does change. And actually time restriction. So using a shorter caloric period or the time elapsed between your first calories a day and your last calories a day is actually likely to influence your diet quality too. And therefore, when I think about giving people advice about their health, you, you try and triage things. You try and pick the things that people can sustain, which are based around behaviors rather than outcomes. And you try and pick the things that are going to have a positive knock-on effect on other aspects of their life. Think about owning a dog. You say to somebody, I think it'd be great if you have a dog. They get a dog, they develop a new relationship with another being. They get exposed to various pathogens from that animal, which helps tune their own immune system and is probably good for them. It gets them outside, which gets them light exposure during the day. It also increases their physical activity. Mm. And for that reason, it actually has an enormously positive effect on their health as arcane as getting a dog dog might sound and actually i think that the advice to use this type of time restricted eating approach is advice that's likely to confer a range of different benefits for many people and and also the focus on consistency is important because i mentioned earlier the idea that if if we're constantly changing our patterns each day then we're actually disrupting many of our body's clocks in the process well Diet timing consistency is also important too. There's a guy at the University of Nottingham named Ian McDonald who's done lots of really nice research on this. And what you find is that if, if, for example, you compare the response of young women who consume a fixed number of meals each day for two weeks to when they consume a varying number of meals, so on average the same number of meals, then the consistent meal pattern leads to greater diet-induced thermogenesis, better blood sugar regulation, and lower hunger too. So that type of consistency is important. Yeah. So, so I suppose that just as a general comment, yes, all of these tightly controlled experimental studies are full of limitations, but in order to try and understand the mechanisms by which these behaviors might influence us, they're absolutely necessary. Oh, yeah. And then they, they need to, of course, be juxtaposed with studies in which you give people advice and you then see how they behave and then you follow up their health outcomes over a period of time. And actually there've been some really nice breakfast skipping studies, for example, that have done a good job of, of answering this type of question too. So again, a slightly prattling response from me. No, great response. I, I think, I think those things are all worth considering. To, to be honest, uh, what's in my head there is that, that, just the last few minutes of what you just spoke about there is fucking phenomenal because I'm just nodding my head along going like, like basically what you've said is like, again, like I suppose maybe it's group thinking now, but it's, it's fully how I would see this situation as well. So first off, I really liked your analogy there using strength training. So, you know, you were saying that, all right, you know, you typically you're not as strong in the first thing in the morning as you will be in the afternoon because of these rhythms. But after a while, will you adapt? Yeah. 
you, you like there will be an adaptation but would you still be it's optimally as strong probably not so we, you know you could it's kind of the same analogy we're using there with the, the meal time it's like okay mm-hmm. yeah you, you could still take the majority at night time yep. but based off the literature we're saying would that be like absolute optimal if you could spread a little more or put a little more in the early part of the day and mm-hmm. all these other factors are in place the literature would say probably not but like again if you got someone who if you got someone who like was just life's a disaster and they they're let's say but they were getting the majority of their calories in the day but someone else everything else is in order and they got at night time then it's like you know then it like it's this whole other context conversation again but i like the way you use the strength training sort of analogy to sort of get the, the point same sort of point across and um yeah and, and mentioning exercise actually is very important too because again we try and keep this constant during these controlled studies but we actually know relatively little about the interaction between exercise and diet in the context of biological rhythms. And yeah. people are only just starting to look at this particular question. There was a study that was just published by Julian Zirath at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. And they looked at the influence of time of exercise on <clears throat> blood glucose regulation in people with type 2 diabetes and what they found was that actually if if people do high intensity intermittent training in the morning then perhaps counterintuitively it actually increased blood glucose concentrations for exercise during the first week compared with the pre-training period Mm. and afternoon high intensity intermittent training was beneficial but what you saw was that by the end of the second week of the intervention, the negative effects that you saw of the morning exercise were subsiding. So there was a suggestion that you might start to adapt to that type of training. So again, whereas the afternoon exercise in this particular context might be optimal over time, if we extend that study out, maybe we would see that the results converged after several weeks. Yeah. And just the other thing I was going to say there too that you touched on beforehand was like I suppose what's what's more important than anything else is finding you know a consistent rhythm mm. you know, and, and that's something that an individual can stick because I know human uh, with human OS like the big thing is behavioral change you know and, and trying to find it's kind of like Danny had that saying he goes the best diet is the one that you can stick to. Uh, you know sort of uh, you know so i suppose like out of we, we we could talk mechanisms all day long and obviously we, we want we want to take something that is as close to optimal as possible but it has to be realistic in terms of can can the individual you know stick to this from a behavioral standpoint and adhere to it or yeah like, or or adhere as danny says i always think that's when he says adherence <laughs> <laughs> where's, where's the deal huh yeah, yeah, where's, where's the deer? Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, listen, I, I think all, all those points are, are phenomenal. And uh, I like, I guess my, my one sort of takeaway for the people is that I just never, never want people to like blindly, you know, hear, accept like this one thing and then let that sort of mm-hmm. like ruin their sort of like their lives basically. It's like, well, I heard like you can't eat four hours for bed and that's it. And then like they just won't go to, you know, this kind of thing. And yeah, so, like, listen, like we're dynamic, we're flexible. Like, I think the key thing is that consistency is a key like all right like you do you and yeah and it's it's just yeah it's fine it's fine something that is consistent and from a health standpoint is contributing to your health i do fully agree with you though that you know when we do study these mechanisms of the body and the rhythms that we touched on so there does seem to be more like you know um metabolic um 
like intensity or what's the fucking word from thinking of thermogenesis like earlier in the day when you eat and so that might be more beneficial to overall health and body composition and so that's kind of going back to like would it be more optimal to eat in a pattern where like you spread the calories out maybe more over the course of the day or get more earlier on the day that probably is more optimal if we're really looking at how humans evolved and physiology and all that but again like if you're taking someone like listen that just doesn't jive with my lifestyle and I I, I will not stick to that it's like okay well we need something then that gets us as close to that as possible and is is off like is realistic for you is it like the most optimal probably not but is it still going to serve you well and is it really going to be any more detriment to your health if everything else in your life is in place like it's kind of like the whole thing is context is what I'm trying to get it's like you know we need context and all these sort of things and I think I'm just speaking more so to myself because when I was younger, I'd read, like, again, like, the, I never forget that reading that, the, the, the gallbladder, liver, uh, liver the, the liver gallbladder push book and your man saying, get all them in at midday because that's when you can, and I remember just wolfing all my calories in midday and it'd be bollocks for the day going, what's wrong with my stomach? And I was like, well, maybe because I'm eating, like, fucking everything at midday and I'm bollocks for the day then, do you know that kind of way? And, uh, and it's funny you actually mentioned, um, you know, how, you know, again, how dynamic and adaptable we are because I remember when I was doing um, I was basically like doing a, a body composition like I was getting ready for a photo shooting and mm. the sort of nutritional plan I was on put me on actually like six six feedings a day mm-hmm. and it was like you know it was really kind of structured and my last meal was at 7pm when I just said there now my body and I can remember like I, I adjusted that perfectly and I actually did feel great you know what I mean so like you know so then like I went from like because I would usually just be like a three meal a day person square meals a day um, but just for that, like I was, I had to spread my protein a bit more and whatnot. So yeah, getting, and I, I was getting I, six I, feedings in a day, but like my my patterns had changed. Like whereas I was actually waking up very hungry in the morning because my last meal was, at, you know, it was it was earlier in the afternoon and the meals were smaller. That sort of way, you know. So, mm. so I was just I, I'm fully agreed to like we are obviously we're adaptable, we're dynamic. I'm sure anyone who's ever listened to my podcast knows you know because that's all I ever fucking studies epigenetics, <laughs> the organism, and whatnot. But we're after fucking ranting on this one topic, and I had so many other topics to get through. <laughs> so go ahead. You want to say something there? Yeah, I was just going to say that all of this is, of course, very goal dependent too. So okay. you mentioned there preparing for a photo shoot, and I wouldn't say to somebody who's trying to gain lean lean body mass as fast as possible, yeah, you should use a time restricted eating approach in which you consume all of your calories within an eight hour period each day. It's all I context. think context. I, th- yeah. I think that's going to actually be detrimental to your goals. So. Mm-hmm. It really depends on the person. If you have a very high energy intake, for example, then you're probably going to want more feedings. It it always depends on your goals. I, like I guess for me, um, I was going to say wrapping this up, but I mean you could obviously run this again. I suppose when I first heard that discussion with Danny, like the first thing that kind of came to mind was like Eric Helms and Mike Isertel and their pyramids. You know, and they're just like, mm. like you know, with them it's all like, well, really, just comes down to calories for the most part, and then your macros. Or like, when you hit those, that's eighty percent of your results. So. Like, and like, cause I heard Mark McDonald say this before in a, in a, I think it was with Danny too, it was on some podcast where, you know, he was trying to dispel the myth of like taking, you know, eating late at night makes you fat. You know, and obviously he knows that isn't true. So he was like, he did this where he had all his calories, like, like before bed and he was, yep. track, he was tracking his weight and his body comp and he was like, nope, nothing really happened. Mm-hmm. You know, or the majority of his calories, you know, that sort of way. But again, they, I don't know if he's tracking biomarkers. See, and again, this there is obviously a difference between body comp and health. I mean, you can get shredded eating fucking shy food, but your fucking biomarkers could potentially go all over the place. No, then the guy in the Twinkie diet has proved that as well. <laughs> he was on yeah. the Twinkie diet. And see, that's another thing too. It's like nearly one of the best things you can do is actually just get leaner. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and improve your body comp, even in terms from a health standpoint. But again, there's probably more context there in, in, in terms of like what was the person's starting point before they went and done that, you know, whereas you, if you took someone who's already very lean and carrying a lot of muscle mass and then they went on a shit diet from a quality standpoint, then you can probably see maybe detriments in their biomarkers where you take someone who's already fat as fuck, but then, con- but then controlled calories and they hit their macros, but it still wasn't great food. You probably will, because they lost weight and their body can't improve, you probably will see improvements in biomarkers. So again, there's just so many confounding factors. And I guess that's why I'm kind of always a bit trepid now when people say like, you know, things like, they come out and say like, this is a fact. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, how are we backing that up with one study? I'm not, I'm not saying it's you, but like, you know, they just say like one study or epidemiological studies or, hmm. and I think too, because I'm listening to so much Joe Rogan lately and Joe Rogan like pulls up every guest. I love it. I love when he does that. He had Andrew Wilde on there a while ago, who's an integrated doctor, like, and like, you know, there were certain things Andrew would say and Joe's like, yeah, yeah, I, I'd buy that. And then like Andrew Wilde would say something else and Joe goes, that's bullshit. I'm not buying that, Andrew. That's absolute, that's, <laughs> that's crap. And I'm like, yeah, you stick it to him, Joe. He even actually goes during the podcast, he goes, there's loads of conventional doctors around the world going, yeah, you tell him, Joe Rogan. <laughs> it's really, really funny. All right. So I booked you in for an hour and 20. We're on an hour and 20, but... Um, Man, I gotta get you back on because I want to talk about chronotypes. Uh, so much fucking shit I want to talk about. There's chronotypes. There's like strategies for for traveling with athletes. You know, performance. I mean, like the thing is, when I say performance, I'm I'm talking about even like cognitive performance, like CAO, CEOs and whatnot. You know, not even sure. just like athletic performance. Obviously, just just cognitive performance is very important. Yeah. But listen, uh, just for you, we wrap up there. Um, Give us uh, your reading list at the moment. What what uh what are you currently reading? And also, if you had to give a book away, what book would you give away? So your top book and what are you currently reading? Is the book health related or anything you want, man? Anything you want can be any book. So basically, any if you were to give away a book that you think could you know be a benefit to anyone in the world. Like, what book would it be? The usual answer I'm getting nowadays, well, it depends. What does the person want? Where are they in their lives? <laughs> Just give me a fucking book. <laughs> and uh, what, are you, what are you currently reading? What are you getting into yourself? Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a book that's not necessarily the book that I would give because I just suspect that the one that I would give has already been suggested a bunch of times before. So the book that I would say is Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Uh, look. Man, <laughs> I am. I am like I've read it. I've already read it, and I'm going through it again. Like literally, after we finish here, I'll be studying this for the next three hours. Yeah, well, I just I, I thought I thought given the listenership, that's that's something that people would enjoy, and it's dense, but at the same time, it's very readable. He's an incredible communicator. He's a fantastic scientist. It's very powerful. It's very moving. It's extremely interesting, mm. and I think that if people can read that book and understand the key concepts in it then they will both understand an awful lot more about what they need to do to be healthy and live a richer life but also about the forces that influence us in society to be good agents or bad agents so i think that that would be a good one what am i reading at the moment i'm reading a very short introduction to economics how on earth you write a short introduction to that i've got no idea why why that what what has the interest in economics so the actual reason, <laughs> the actual reason is that I, I wrote a book chapter for Oxford University Press last mm-hmm. year, and I got given loads and loads of money to spend on books. So I was just going through their books, and I picked up a textbook on neuroscience. I picked up about 
five or six of these very short introductions and picked up Jerry Coyne's book, Why Evolution is True, and a few others. Wow. So I'm reading that one at the moment, and then I am about to start reading another book, which might be Chris Ryan's book, namely, what's it called? That's not The Sex Before Dawn, is it? Sex at Dawn. Yeah, I might start reading that. Yeah, yeah, got, yeah. Got that kicking about. That's a book I need to actually get myself. Uh, sure, listen, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up there, and uh, i got to get you back on. Because, again, as I said, chronotypes, uh, human behavior is what I want to talk about, too, like changing behaviors. I mean, that's kind of the, the big thing. But, listen, um, tell us more about where people can connect with you. Uh, tell us what you got gone going over at, at UNOS. I also want to like ask, like, how did you get involved, obviously, with Dan and, and, and the guys there? Is, is uh, Stephen Gannett, is pronounce his second name? Stefan Guinea. Guinea. Sorry, excuse me, Stephanie, for listening. I apologize. I just want to make sure, <laughs> I want, I want to make sure that that because I have this thing about pronouncing people's names and like you know it's like that you know how how to win friends and influence people. It's like you know names are important, so get them right. Yeah, Stefan. <laughs> is Stefan Guinea still involved on that? Yeah. So the ideal weight program is the love child of Stefan and Dan. Yeah. Yeah. So Stefan's still, love child. Yeah. So Stefan's still involved. How do I get involved? Dan reached out to me during my PhD because he read a review paper that I wrote Very and good. he said, I'd, I'd like to interview you for human Ice radio. And then we pretty much went from there, but actually we'd had some contact on Twitter before that love at first tweet and all that. So <laughs> <laughs> one thing led to another and yeah, now I'm content director for humanos.me, which occupies much of my time and the idea is just that instead of having multiple different apps for your health, we try and give you one place where you can come for good peer reviewed information about health. But also we try to give you the tools that you need so that you can act that good information too, because lots of people, they read books and they think, well, okay, this is the diet that I should give a go, but they don't know how to go about carrying out that diet. So we have things like, courses on how to cook we have different recipe packs that people can look at we have different exercise programs that dan created and then also people can track their health behaviors on the platform too so it will sync with things like fitbits so people can see how many steps they're taking when they're sleeping how much sleep they're getting and so on and then also you'll soon be able to track more of your health outcomes there too so it's a web application and my role is principally to produce educational content for it so if you're interested in what we spoke about today i've got four courses on circadian rhythms up on human os there's also a guide to chrononutrition or the importance of diet time and i think that we've got a discount code for people that do want to check it out because you can sign up for free and that will give you access to our introductory course which is called road of health which i really strongly suggest that people do check out but if people were interested in accessing everything on HumanOS, then you can get your first month for a dollar if you use the discount code ATSAW, is in all things strength and wellness, when you sign up. Worst, so that, worst podcast name ever, I know. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, so, so that, I think, summarizes it. And then otherwise, you, you can connect with me too, but I would say check out HumanOS Radio. I host it periodically. And otherwise, Dan does the bulk of those interviews. Check out our blog too. I've written about many of the things that we've spoken about today as well as many other topics too. 
we're on Twitter at humanos underscore me. I'm on Twitter personally too, which is at GDM Potter. And then if you want to get in touch, you can also ping me a message on LinkedIn or whatever too. Man, I just want to say I really appreciate you. Uh, that was a phenomenal discussion. And I'm just making, so uh, just for the listeners, like uh, Greg's camera's on, but mine's on. So if you're seeing me, like you're probably well used to it by now if you're listening to my episodes, but like when you see me like, my eyes drifting away from the screens because I'm writing notes and I'm just writing notes about like part two with us. <laughs> like, uh, just saying like the next one I get you on, I want to discuss more about chronotypes, m- more about behavioral change. Uh, I want to ask you about light therapies. If, if you know anything or, or, or look sure. at like ph- photobiomodulation stuff and then, uh, sort of strategies then you know so athletes and CAO so you know we spoke yeah. we you know because I think what's happening a lot too is people are speaking a lot about mechanisms you know okay well mm. you know this is what's happening in the body that's what happened in the body and sure. a lot of people are putting their message out there like very pessimistically you know like this is like the blue light and it's destroying us and it's making us sound like weak yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's kind of like you know like all right like what do we fucking do about it then do you know what I mean like let's sure, you know, sure. So, and, and, and actually just on that point just so that I don't leave people hanging something no, leave, leave, leave us hanging leave us hanging so something that's missed in that conversation is that the importance the important thing to understand is that it's the contrast between your daylight exposure and your nighttime exposure to light that's important mm. it's not just artificial light exposure and I think people look at some of these carefully controlled studies of things like tablet use in the evening and its effects on melatonin synthesis, melatonin timing, sleep onset. And what they miss, because maybe they don't understand the nuances of how this is regulated, is that for the most part, people in those studies have been held in dim light for a period of several hours prior to exposure to the light emitted from those readers or what have you. Now, if those people were outside during the day and they were getting a really strong daytime light exposure signal, then that exposure to a small amount of blue light in the evening would be a drop in the ocean. It would probably barely shift their body's clocks. So this, this, is what I, this, is, like, this kind of goes off a conversation around like there's just so much more context that needs to go around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just get outside for half an hour during the day, go for a walk with your mates at lunch, you do yourself some good, you'll be physically active and you have fun. Man, this oh, wow! Does time go by so fast? Like, how are we already ninety minutes? It's just fucking phenomenal. Another one too is go, circadian rhythm and the microbiome. If you know any more about that, so there'd be things I'd like to ask you. So, chronotypes, be, behavior change, light therapies, strategies for athletes and CEOs, like people who do a lot of traveling on planes, and yeah, just sort of like had to be kick-ass human beings. The other thing, actually, I will want to ask about is uh, biometrics. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, like, again, these are for next time, so you can maybe think about them. Um, we're sort of like, you know, you know, like when people get their bloods done and like mm. your bloods are just like so dynamic across the 24 hour cycle too, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like so, that's, that's another thing. And then just for you, you hop in there too, like this is going to maybe sound a little bit weird at first, but the role of architects going forward in, in our society. So what I mean yeah, by that yeah. is like just, and I'm completely ignorant to architecture. I have one friend and he's discussed this, but like, why can't we design buildings where the lighting, like, is basically like the sun throughout the day? Like, can we not do that already? Like, is that not something yeah. we can do, you know? Yeah, and, and people have started to look at that. So, for example, <sighs> if, you, if you measure light exposure in the office, then people who are exposed to more daylight, more intense daylight, tend yeah. to report better sleep at night. And people are now interested in 
optimizing indoor lighting environments so that we can try and enhance the function of our circadian systems. So that, so that is going to be really important. And a lot of that comes down to incentives too. I'm just trying to think about what the thing that you mentioned prior to that was that I was going to pick up on. Oh, what was the microbiome circadian rhythms? No, the one after that. What did I say? Microbiome circadian rhythms. Uh, there was anyway. Tr- anyway, we'll... <laughs> we'll we'll, uh, we'll 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 get back to it anyway. So we will. Uh, well, uh, sure, I can just listen back and we can hop on it. Um, but listen, Greg, that's phenomenal, phenomenal. I uh, really, really uh, appreciate you coming on. And so I'll have everything linked up in the show notes. So I'll just say goodbye uh, to everyone listening, and then I'll say goodbye to you offline. So as I've been saying to all you listeners lately, you're spoilt rotten with all this information. Absolutely spoiled. And um, when you start charging for this. Um, but anyway for now from myself and from Mr. Potter hopefully we'll have him back on for part duh pretty soon Um, but for everyone take care be well and as I say at the end of every podcast stay strong